Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, October 30th. In today's news, President Trump and Joe Biden both held rallies in Tampa on Thursday. Today, each will go to Minnesota. Both campaigns seek to shore up support from Latino voters, and Trump takes gray wolves off the endangered species list, putting them in danger of going extinct. But first, the big idea. Nearly 90,000 new coronavirus infections were reported in the United States on Thursday, an all-time high, and 1,063 of our fellow Americans died from the contagion. Meanwhile, President Trump said again on the campaign trail that we've turned the corner and it's going away. Donald Trump Jr. said on Fox News last night that these numbers are, quote, almost nothing because we've gotten control of this. Tell that to the 1,063 families who lost a loved one yesterday. The Trumps are telling you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It is their final, most essential command. But this closing argument is just so breathtakingly at odds with the facts on the ground. Cases are surging in every presidential battleground state. In the 13 states deemed competitive by the Cook Political Report, the weekly average of new cases reported daily has jumped 45% over the past two weeks, from about 20,000 new cases a day to more than 30,000 yesterday. Our Harry Stevens reports that Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania have all hit new weekly average highs in recent days. And in Florida and Georgia, case counts are growing again after having fallen from their summer highs. The rising caseloads have been especially alarming in Minnesota and Wisconsin, as well as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, all places that had managed to avoid the worst of the deadly surges this summer. Even in New Hampshire, a state where the pandemic has remained relatively subdued, case counts are on the rise again. As states Trump depended on to defeat Hillary Clinton in 2016 post record numbers, the president has done nothing to show that he gets it. For so many reasons, it didn't have to be this way. People pretending like the virus was going to go away by Easter or wasn't a big deal made the mess so much worse. Here's just one illustration, but it's an illustration that matters. The Trump administration has let nursing homes off the hook for infection control violations. At the outset of the pandemic, just weeks after the first known outbreak on U.S. soil, the woman that Trump put in charge of protecting 1.3 million residents of America's nursing homes laid out an urgent strategy to slow the spread. In the suburbs of Seattle, federal inspectors had just found that the Life Care Center in Kirkland failed to properly care for ailing patients or alert authorities to a growing number of respiratory infections. At least 146 other nursing homes across the country had confirmed coronavirus cases by late March when Seema Verma, who is the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, vowed to, quote, keep what happened in Kirkland from ever happening again. Well, she didn't. The government inspectors deployed by CMS during the first six months of the crisis cleared eight in 10 nursing homes of any infection control violations, even as the deadliest pandemic to strike America in a century killed tens of thousands of people in those homes. A post-investigation by Debbie Senziper, Joel Jacobs, and Sean Mulcahy found that those homes cleared by the Trump administration included some with mounting outbreaks before and during the inspections, as well as those that saw cases and deaths spiral upward immediately after inspectors reported that there were no violations. In some cases, no violations were found multiple times. All told, nursing homes that received a clean bill of health 
had 290,000 coronavirus cases and 43,000 deaths among residents and staff. The death toll constitutes roughly two-thirds of all COVID fatalities linked to nursing homes from March through August. Now, patient watchdog groups acknowledge not every outbreak could have been prevented, of course, even with adequate infection control practices in place. But as the pandemic raged, the number of homes flagged for infection control violations remained about the same as the year before the pandemic. That makes no sense. My colleagues discovered that the facilities that were cited for breakdowns often escaped significant penalties. Inspectors reported violations at about 3,500 homes, ranging from dirty medical equipment to a lack of social distancing. Federal law allows CMS to levy fines of $22,000 for each serious violation every single day that it lingers. But most providers were fined little or nothing. Get this, for failing to ensure that staff members wore masks, Sterling Place in Baton Rouge, where 15 people died and there were more than 80 cases, was fined 3,200 bucks. For failing to separate residents in a common area, Heritage Hall in Leesburg, Virginia, where 18 people died and which had more than 100 cases, was fined 5,000 bucks. For failing to use protective gear, the Broomall Nursing Center in Pennsylvania, where about 50 people died and there were more than 200 cases among the highest death counts of any one building in the country, they were fined $9,750, 50 deaths and a fine of less than 10,000 bucks. This lax approach is part of a pattern. It follows a three-year push at CMS to ease rules considered burdensome to the nursing home industry, whose lobbyists and leaders include former politicians and government insiders. Even before the crisis, Trump appointees at this agency took several significant steps to limit the use of certain fines and to overturn an Obama-era mandate requiring that nursing homes bring on at least one part-time infection preventionist. Charlene Harrington, a nursing professor at the University of California at San Francisco, who studied the industry for more than 30 years, said, quote, I cannot think of one decision that CMS made properly. They just rolled over and did whatever the nursing homes wanted. CMS made it so much worse than it could have been if they had just kept their oversight in place. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Friday. Number one, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last night that the state of Minnesota must set aside ballots received after Election Day. The federal appeals court decision means Minnesotans must return their mail-in ballots by Tuesday for them to be counted, upending plans that the state had been advertising to keep counting absentee ballots postmarked by Election Day for another week. The Trump campaign celebrated this as a major victory that could tip the state to Trump. The decision sent Democrats scrambling to warn voters. This court ruling comes on the eve of scheduled rallies today in Minnesota by Trump and Joe Biden. Trump is going this afternoon to Rochester, Minnesota, which is home to the world-famous Mayo Clinic and also happens to be where my mom lives. The city's mayor and that hospital are alarmed about this rally, which will disregard state health guidelines that call for limiting crowds to 250 people. The mayor is pleading with elderly folks to stay away, and the hospital is suggesting that anyone who goes to Trump's rally should get tested after they do. And there's good reason for them to be nervous. Two people who attended Trump's rally at the airport in Gaston, North Carolina, have tested positive. Trump's rally in Tampa yesterday resulted in 17 attendees needing medical attention, with at least a dozen taken to the hospital. The president spoke for an hour in 87-degree heat outside of Raymond James Stadium to a largely maskless group of supporters. 
Trailing in the polls and with little time to change the trajectory of the race, Trump complained angrily that the coronavirus is getting too much media attention. And he openly mused about losing. The Tampa Fire Department said afterwards that one of the attendees fainted in the heat, another had a seizure. This kind of stuff happens at rallies, but it comes two days after 30 people who attended Trump's rally in Omaha, Nebraska, needed medical attention after poor planning by the campaign and transportation snafus resulted in hundreds of Trump supporters being stuck outside for hours in below freezing temperatures, unable to get to their cars, which were miles away. Seven were hospitalized. Biden also campaigned in Tampa on Thursday, but no one at his event needed to be hospitalized. He spoke at a socially distanced drive-in rally on a college campus. People stayed in or near their cars. Biden said Trump is spreading more than just the virus. He's spreading division and discord. And then he added, if Florida goes blue, it's over. And there are growing concerns about discord and division and potential violence around the election. Walmart said yesterday that it has removed gun and ammunition displays from thousands of its U.S. stores, citing concerns about potential civil unrest. A spokesman for the world's largest retailer said they moved the guns and ammo off the sales floor as a precaution for the safety of their associates and customers. And yesterday, the FBI arrested two men, including the self-proclaimed leader of a white supremacist group called The Base, as part of a pre-election crackdown on violent extremism. Three weeks ago, the Bureau foiled a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Number two, the Trump campaign unveiled a television ad targeting Latinos in South and Central Florida, as well as Arizona and Nevada yesterday, that drew a connection between the hopes and aspirations of immigrant communities and the president's pandemic response. Biden announced yesterday that if elected, he would sign an executive order on day one, establishing a task force to find the parents of the 545 kids who are still separated from their families as a result of Trump's immigration crackdown at the U.S.-Mexico border. Biden's plan is featured in a new ad highlighting what he says are inhumane conditions at the border. These efforts come as my colleagues Jose Del Real, Amy Gardner, and Jenna Johnson report that Democratic consultants are freaking out that early turnout among Latinos in some states is lagging expectations. Polls show Latinos could be decisive, not just in places like Nevada and Arizona, but also in Michigan and North Carolina, where they're a growing part of the electorate. Nationally, an estimated 32 million Latinos are eligible to vote in 2020. But experts who study the Latino community say that many of those eligible voters remain alienated from the political process and have received little information from the campaigns about how to vote. Democratic strategists, on the other hand, are heartened that young people are turning out in droves. Major social movements driven by young activists around climate change, gun safety, and Black Lives Matter have led to an explosion of civic awareness among younger Americans who are on track to break the record that they set in 2008. Twelve years ago, 48% of eligible voters under 30 voted, and Barack Obama got elected president. Number three, last night, the Trump administration announced that the president has stripped gray wolves of their Endangered Species Act protections in the lower 48 states. Trump ignored an outcry from conservation groups and scientists, including some on the federal payroll, who say the animals will be slaughtered as a result of this and that the species may not survive. Daryl Fears reports that the federal government will cease trying to protect the wolves. There are an estimated 6,000 wolves in America, mostly in three Midwestern states, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Trump hopes that hunters in those states will be more likely to vote for him by doing this. There are also about 
1,800 wolves, gray wolves, present in other states like Oregon, California, and Washington. The population is up from 1,000 nationwide when gray wolves were listed as endangered back in 1967. But the population is still so depleted that thousands of acres of historic wolf habitat in Utah, Colorado, and Maine are uninhabited. Conservation groups promised to sue the government and hope to draw an amenable judge. This is also part of a pattern of Trump waging war on wolves since taking office. He's attempted to roll back protections for the animals under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to benefit his donors in the oil and gas industry. He greenlit controversial hunting practices on national preserves in Alaska, allowing people to bait the animals with donuts, shine spotlights into their dens to draw them out, and even allowing hunters to kill wolf pups and bear cubs. Gray wolves once roamed our entire continent until hunting, poisoning, and trapping decimated their numbers and rendered them nearly extinct. Mexican wolves in Arizona and New Mexico suffered an even worse fate. Red wolves that roamed the East Coast, as well as Texas and Louisiana, were virtually wiped out. Now, red wolves exist only in zoos and a tiny experimental wild population of fewer than 30 in North Carolina. Hopefully, the gray wolves can escape that fate. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, October 30th. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Ariel Plotnick. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. Don't forget to vote. I'll talk to you on Monday. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.